Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today, I'm going to be telling you part two of the story of the Powell family. So grab your coffee and let's dive in. So in part one, I talked to you guys about how Susan Powell went missing and Josh Powell was the main suspect in the disappearance. Now I'm going to go into kind of their marriage just so that you guys can have a better idea of it. So when Susan went to labor with her first son, Charlie, Josh didn't take her to the hospital. He refused to take her to the hospital and instead made Susan's parents, Chuck and Terry, drive her to the hospital because he insisted that he needed to back up his hard drive before he went to the hospital. Sounds like his priorities are not necessarily in check. No, I would agree. I thought it was super weird because you'd think that for the birth of your first child, you'd probably want to be there if you're like at all invested. I mean, even if you don't want to be there for it, which you should be, at least take her to the hospital. I agree. I think that it should. Yeah. But you know what? Backing up the hard drive, super important. I understand. I'm sure it was time sensitive. Very time sensitive. It took Josh two hours before he went to the hospital to be with his wife. When he got there, though, he just sat down in a chair and started working on his laptop. But Susan's dad, Chuck, told Josh that he needed to just put his laptop away and be with his wife because, you know, she's birthing his child. There was also some issues around the house. So Josh was in charge of the house. He was very dominant over everything. So Susan had to ask permission to drive the car and he actually made her ride a bike to her job. She wasn't allowed to take the car to the job because he would need the car. She also wasn't allowed to have a cell phone for the longest time, which is also odd. And that all kind of had to do with him being strict about the money that they had. Which if you listen to part one, I told you that he had to file bankruptcy in 2008. So he was super strict about the money. And one of Susan's friends, Michelle, said, quote, he would give Susan an amount of money. And on grocery shopping, he also had a spreadsheet that she was to look at through ads and find the cheapest price of things. When she went shopping, she came home and she had to enter every single item into that spreadsheet. And if she spent more than a couple cents more on a can of beans, Josh would yell at her and get really angry. To me, it just sounds like he was a super controlling, emotionally abusive guy. Very controlling. He even forced Susan to knit socks instead of buying her own to save them money. Yeah, socks aren't that expensive. You can go to Dollar Tree and get a pack of socks for a, you know, dollar. Yeah. Nope. Not in this household. In this household, Susan had to knit them. Now, did he have to have knitted socks? I don't know if he had to have knitted socks, but he made her knit the socks. He also, in this part I hate, controlled how much his children ate. There were points in time where Susan had to call friends and ask to sneak hot dogs from them because Charlie and Brayden were so hungry. And one of the quotes that Josh apparently said about Charlie was, he gets one meal a day at daycare. That's all he needs. You're not wasting my food on him because he's just going to poop it out. I, I mean, that, that is how the digestive system works. I bet it's happening to Josh, too. I bet he's pooping out his own food. No, not him. No, no, no. Yeah. When I was reading about it, it every time that came up, 
people were like putting comments in where they're like yeah you see it happened to you as well it's a sad reality of how many kids have like this problem and they are really only getting their meals throughout their days at school or at a daycare or through some type of institution like that and they're not being taken care of at home like they're supposed to be it's very sad and at the time that that was happening Charlie was just a year old and got diagnosed with malnutrition by the doctor. Josh got so strict over the money of what Susan spent, not necessarily what he spent, but he got so strict over the money that she was spending that he only allowed her to go for a run every other day because he wanted to save money on showers. But in Josh's free time, just guess what he did? Stuff that costs money? Yeah. He went and gambled at the casino. So his idea of saving money really only came into play when it was surrounding the fact that he wanted to control Susan. In the first episode as well, I talked a lot about Stephen Powell, who's Josh's father, and about Josh's childhood and how it wasn't always great and he didn't have the best example to follow. So now I'm going to go into a little bit more about Stephen. Now that most of you probably have the idea that Josh is involved in his wife's disappearance. Stephen Powell was a man that he viewed women as sex objects he didn't see them as people and he was a porn addict who was constantly thinking about himself only and what he wanted so his daughter-in-law susan was something that he felt like was his and he had apparently been very obsessed with her and thought that she was flirting with him at different times And there had been apparently multiple times that she had told him that she was just his daughter-in-law and didn't want anything more. I'm also going to go out on a limb and guess that she was absolutely not flirting with him and he was just trying to read into something that he clearly had made up in his own mind. I'm thinking that that's kind of what it was. So Stephen would even talk about how much he was in in love with and obsessed with his daughter-in-law in in front of Josh. I just think that that's kind of messed up. There were also police reports found that where they had gone through some of Stephen's stuff and they found a diary of his where he'd been writing about Susan. It is interesting to me, too, that everybody in this story has diaries. I agree. It's a little strange. (laughs) You don't. I mean, we don't come across it a ton when we do investigate the true crime episodes and stuff. But this one, they all just have a diary and they're writing down shit and yeah. I assume what they find in his probably isn't going to be pretty, like, it's not going to be good for his character and how he looks. Well, so the reason that his diary was found was because he was arrested for taking photographs and videos of young girls while they were changing and bathing in their bathroom. In their bathrooms? Like he went to their house and stalked them? I th- it says that it said their bathroom. I guess I didn't even think about it. I'm assuming it was like if people were coming over to his house or because it says young girls. I don't know if it was actually kids, but that was how it was worded on the sites that I was finding where it had his sentence. So at the time that they released the diary entries, he was actually at Washington State Prison serving his sentence for that. One of his diary entries that he wrote about Susan said, quote, what has driven me in the past year is primarily lust. I've never lusted for a woman as I have for Susan. I take chances sometimes to take video clips of her, which I watch regularly. How I would love to kiss those lips. End quote. (sighs) It sounds so gross. Yeah, it sounds bad. Like, also, why is he documenting that? Oh, do you want to hear the worst part? No. Oh, okay. 
They're obviously investigating Susan. Steven's been arrested for being a perv, basically. And so they investigate Steven once they find this diary and stuff. And they find items belonging to Susan. Cotton balls that she had used to remove nail polish. Pairs of her panties in Ziploc bags. Toenail clippings. Hair clippings. Used sanitary napkins. And other souvenirs. And they were all dated and from when he found them. And they all had her name on them. You guys can't see Abby's face, but she's of pure disgust right now. It's rough. Susan's family comes forward and ends up offering a $10,000 reward for any information regarding their daughter. Because they're really trying to find her and fight for it. More things kind of come to light during the investigation. So they find that the vehicle that Josh had the rental car had been driven several hundred miles i don't know how long he'd had it and eventually in december of 2009 towards the end of it shortly after she went missing josh completely stops helping with finding his wife stops working with the police or anything by january of 2010 he has packed up his boys and everything that they own and they're going to be moving back to washington state then on january 11th of 2010 He and his friends and neighbors load a moving van, and he moves everybody to Washington. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. The police keep track of Josh Powell and his kids because they still believe that Josh had something to do with Susan's disappearance. They interviewed Charlie and Brayden. Charlie gives some more information. Josh continues throughout all the years. He constantly said that Susan was at home asleep in their bed when he left and she just disappeared from their house. But Charlie has a different story. And Charlie tells investigators that they went camping at Dinosaur National Park, is what he called it. I'm assuming what he was referring to was the Simpson Springs campground that I talked about the first episode where they went camping, according to Josh. And he told investigators, quote, well, he told investigators that they went camping and his mom, dad, and brother Braden were all there with him. And that the family took some flowers and crystals home with them. But that when it was time to leave and to head home, he said, quote, my mom stayed where the crystals are because it has so much pretty where the crystals grow, end quote. And it just, it makes me so sad. Then in 2011, Josh loses custody of Charlie and Brayden, which I think it's about time that he loses custody of them. Is it because of reports of him like negligence or is it because of the investigation It's because of the investigation at this point they really think that he is involved in susan's disappearance there's also some things that come to light about josh including some pornography found on his computer they found child pornography on his computer and a lot of them was incest between mothers and their children yeah So police were like, you know what? I think it's probably time that we get you out of the home. So they put them in the care of Chuck and Judy. And the boys really started to talk about what happened. Once they feel comfortable there, 
And the son, Charlie, makes a drawing where it shows him and his brother and the family in the minivan. And Josh is driving. And then the detective asks, like, where'd mommy go? And Charlie replies, she's in the trunk. And then he says that mommy and daddy got out of the minivan and mommy didn't come back. And, you know, if you're going to murder or get rid of your wife, it's not like a fun event where you should bring your kids to it. It's not an event that should happen in the first place, but your kids definitely shouldn't be there if you're going to do it. While the kids were living with their grandparents, there was one night where where Charlie and Brayden refused to put their pajamas on while getting ready for bed. And Chuck, which was their grandpa, asked them who told them it was okay to sleep naked. And they replied that their daddy told them it was okay to sleep naked. And Charlie ended up explaining to Chuck, kind of as he got more comfortable, that he and his brother would sleep naked in the bed with their also naked father, Josh. And there was a photo that one of the kids drew. It was a picture of a kid next to an adult and the words don't play with me were written on it. And also shortly after the boys were removed from Josh's custody, Brayden had been diagnosed with a fungal skin infection, which was a type of infection that commonly came through sexual contact. So it was pretty obvious that he was most likely sexually abusing them. On February 5th, 2012, social worker Elizabeth Griffin Hall took the boys to a scheduled supervised visit with their father. And she said that the boys really wanted to live with their dad again and they always got really excited to go see him which i think is pretty normal and typical so as soon as they got there the boys jumped out of her car and ran up to the house and she was following them right behind but as soon as she got up the door josh slammed the door shut before she could even get into the home and locked it and this was supposed to be a supervised visit correct yes so just to clarify what a supervised visit is it meant that elizabeth was the one in charge of the kids at that moment she was responsible for their well-being and she was taking them to visit their father but he was not deemed responsible enough to take care of his children at that time so she was supposed to monitor and supervise the visit and be involved in all the interactions but josh didn't like that idea and so he slammed the door shut and well grabbed the boys and slammed the door shut as soon as they got in the house and she heard Josh say, Charlie, I've got a big surprise for you. But then she heard Brayden crying. And Josh refused to let her in. And so Elizabeth decided to call 911 because she was supposed to be in that house and Josh was not cooperating. So I'm going to play a 911 call for you guys that she placed. Hey, I'm on a supervised visitation for a court-ordered visit. And something really weird has happened. The kids went into the house and the parent, the biological parent, whose name is Josh Powell, will not let me in the door. What should I do? What's the address? It's 8119, and I, I think it's 89th. Um, I, I don't know what the address is. Okay. That's pretty important for me to know. Um, sorry, I can't. Just a minute. Let me get in my car and see if I can, if I can find it. I'm, this, nothing like this has ever happened before at um, these visitations, so... I'm really um, shocked, and I could hear one of the kids crying, but he still wouldn't let me in. Okay, it is uh, one. Oh, just a minute, I have it here. You can't find me by GPS? No. Okay, it is. Um, oh, I still can't find it. But I think I need help right away. He, he's 
on a very short lease with DSHS and CPS has been involved. And this is the craziest thing. He looked right at me and closed the door. Are you there? Yes, ma'am. I'm just waiting to know where you are. Okay. It's 8119 189th Street, Court East, Puyallup, 98375. And I'd like to pull out of the driveway because I smell gasoline and he won't let me in. You want to pull out of the driveway because you smell gasoline, but he won't let I you... I smell... He, he won't let me in. He won't let you out of the driveway? He won't let me in the house. Whose house is it? He's got kids in the house and he won't let me in. It's a supervised visit. I understand. <laughs> Whose house is it? Josh Powell. Okay, so you don't live there, right? No, I don't... No, I'm okay. contracted to the state to provide supervised visitation. I see. Okay. And, and who is there to exercise their visitation? I am... Uh, and the visit is with Josh Powell, and, who's and he is the husband that I supervise. So you supervise and you're doing the visit? Yeah, you're I supervise yourself? I supervise myself. I'm the supervisor here. Wait a minute. If it's a supervised visit, you can't supervise yourself. If you're the I visitor... I do supervise myself. I'm the supervisor for the supervised visit. Okay, well, aren't you the one, make, aren't you the one making the visit? Or is there another person that you're supervising? No, there's... I'm the one that supervises. I pick up the kids with their grandparents. Yes. And then who visits with the children? Josh Powell. Okay, so you're supposed to be there to supervise Josh Powell's visit with the children. Yes, that's correct. And how did... And he's the husband of missing Susan Powell. How did... How, this is a high-profile case. How did he... How did he gain access to the children before you got he there? They, they, I was one step in back of them. Okay, so they, they went into the house the and then he like locked you out. Yes, he, okay. he shut the door right in my face. All right, now it's clear. Your last name? My name is Elizabeth Griffin Hall. Griffin Hall is hyphenated? Yes. And the dad's last name? Powell, P-O-W-E-L-L. -L. Two L's? Two L's at the end of Powell? Yes. His first name? His first name is Josh. Black, white, Asian, Hispanic, native? He's white. State of birth? I don't know. He's about 39. How tall? Um, 5'10", 150 pounds. Hair color? Brown. Did you notice what he was wearing? No, I didn't notice what he was wearing. Is he alone then, or is anybody else? I don't know. I couldn't get in the house. Right. Are you in a vehicle now or on foot? I'm in a vehicle. I'm in a Prius, on, um, a 2010 Prius. What color is it? the door is locked. But he won't, he hasn't opened the door. I rang the doorbell and everything. I begged him to let me in. Elizabeth, please listen to my questions. What color is the Toyota Prius? Gray, dark gray. And the license number? Um, I don't know. I can look. 750-ZMH. Zebra Mary Henry? Yes. All right. We'll have somebody look for you there. Okay. How long will it be? I don't know, ma'am. They have to respond to emergency, life-threatening situations first. The first available deputy. Well, this, is, this could be life-threatening. He went to court on Wednesday, and he he didn't get his kids back. And this is really, I'm, a, I'm afraid for their lives. Okay, has he threatened the lives of the children previously? I have no idea. All right, we'll have the first available deputy contact you. Thank you. Bye. So, Abby, what are your thoughts about this 911 call with the dispatcher? Uh, yeah, a couple things. First... I feel like they definitely can GPS the phone call. Second, I don't understand why he was struggling so hard to understand what she was saying. He had 
no clue. He did not understand what it meant when she said, I'm the supervisor for a supervised visit. I'm supervising Josh. And they just went around and around and around. I feel like... Because that, that call altogether right there, just that part, takes like seven minutes. And I he she has to say his name 88 times. And I'm like, how are you not... The worst part is at the end where he's like, well, she's like, is someone on the way? He's like, annoyed with her, it sounds like. And he's like, you're going to have to wait. They have to respond to emergencies first. And she's like, this is. And he just didn't believe I her. don't understand, like, why. I mean, it's not like she was being confusing at all. Mm-hmm. And he's like, now, wait a minute. How do you supervise yourself? Mm-hmm. Like, what? And he kept asking questions. And he was like, ma'am, let me ask my questions. Or like, please respond to them. I'm like... I think she's in a panic right now because this man just went into this house, took two children, and it seemed weird. She clearly knew the situation. She knew what was happening. She's trying to get help and save the situation from going where, you know, it could go. And as you heard in it, she started to smell gas. And so she moved her car away, which she got even more concerned at the point that she started to smell the gas. I still am not understanding why these people on the phone with her do not understand what she is saying. She needs to repeat it multiple times to them. I really do not understand because she's crystal clear to me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I also feel like a lot of the stuff that they're going through where it's like, okay, height, weight, is he African-American, white, Hispanic, like all of that stuff I think could be discussed later. Yeah, and like asking her license plate number. Yeah, and he was so adamant about the description of her car. Yeah, that's like, I don't, I cannot understand that at all. Well, and even when they called her back to confirm everything, it was still a mess. So the dispatcher, for those of you wondering, the dispatcher who was on the call was reprimanded, as this article says. And he, he, I don't believe he lost his job because they, the letter says you have undergone local and national scrutiny, have admitted your errors, and have identified the ways you will correct and improve your call handling in the future. That was apparently his fifth time getting in trouble with them though there were four previous ones but they did talk about how he had also received 38 compliments or letters of thank you during his career so i don't know what it was with this case i don't want to completely drag him through the dirt because maybe he was just he must have been having an off day i don't i don't know what it was i don't want to completely 
blame him because he didn't know exactly what was happening. But I think that some better training could have been put in place where he maybe would have better understood what she was trying to get across. I agree. I mean, it's the real tragedy here is that the right steps were not taken. And, you know, you can put the fault on whoever you want in that situation, but the right steps were not taken. I'd like to put the fault on Josh. He definitely is going to need to be taking a lot of it. Yeah. So it took about 22 minutes before anybody arrived to help the situation from the original 911 call. And there was evidence that Josh had planned this. So in the days leading up to it, he had been giving away the toys and the books that he had at the house. Well, even in the call, she says he just had court on Wednesday, however many days before that was. So it could have been some type of triggering event right there. Yeah, because he didn't get the kids back. So he got mad. He also had stopped somewhere and filled up two five gallon jugs of gasoline, which we know now was to use to explode the house. Josh had also sat at his computer and typed up some farewell emails to his friends and relatives. And that was just before the boys arrived there. He told them like where he had kept his money and the process of how to shut off utilities and bills and all that stuff. And he said that he had decided to commit suicide, but he couldn't live without his boys. So he apparently thought that taking them down with him was the way to go. I, I sick. Yeah, he clearly was unstable in his in his head during this situation. A part of one of the emails that he sent said, I'm not able to live without my sons and I'm not able to go on anymore. I'm sorry to everyone I've hurt. Goodbye. And I just, you know what? If he would have gone down himself, that's one thing. But I... Did he in these farewells say anything about Susan? No, he did not. So this is the rough part. And this is the autopsies for the children. The children did not just die from the explosion. They actually died from two things. They bled out and from carbon monoxide poisoning. So prior to exploding the house, Josh had attacked both of the boys using a hatchet and then poured gasoline on them and exploded the house. And researching this episode has been very rough because of this whole part. It's so sad what happened to these kids. And police believe that what happened to these kids was due to the fact that the boys knew what had happened to Susan and kept talking. And so their father decided to shut them up. He was going to kill them. And it's awful. To add to the negativity of this episode, Josh's brother, Michael Powell, ended up committing suicide in February of 2013. So it was just a year after. And he jumped off of a building in downtown Minneapolis. Michael stood on one side of what happened with Susan. And it was, he stood with his father and with Josh, saying that Josh did not have anything to do with Susan. And he once went on to SusanPowell.org and said that he didn't believe law enforcement had enough evidence to support the charges against his dad for the pornography that they found and the photos that he was taking. And he said that they had been fabricated to apparently, and this is quoted, inflict maximum damage to the Powell family's reputation and long-term financial situation. I, I don't understand exactly what he meant by that. Right around the time that he died, he was actually fighting Susan's parents for the insurance policy that had been issued to Josh, Charlie, and Braden. It had been given to them for one and a half million dollars, and he was trying to get that money, but they had it. So it was believed that Michael did have an idea of the fact that Josh was involved in Susan's disappearance, 
And that was why he ended up killing himself because he felt guilty about it and didn't want to come forward. There's a whole bunch of things that he lied about. I'm not going into his whole background because that's gonna that could be almost in a whole nother episode. But he a lot of people believe that he was in on it and knew what was going on. And police even had his phones tapped and it was all part of an operation called Tsunami. And it was because they were trying to figure out what information he knew about Josh in relation to Susan's disappearance. And Josh and Michael used to talk frequently about it. And because their phones were tapped, they used to be able to hear the calls about what they were talking about. And one time the boys were talking about how they wanted to distract attention from allegations related to Josh in his disappearance. And they wanted to post it on this Facebook page. Because they were trying to direct it away from him. Josh and Michael were closely monitoring every Facebook page out there. And anything that was ever released about Susan, they were trying to always keep an eye out for. Just to make sure they weren't coming too close, I think. To figuring out who did it, for sure. And so police tried to, like, draw Josh out and get him to confess. So they started searching in abandoned mines and things in Nevada for her remains, hoping that the publicity would get Josh and Michael to talk more. But they never were able to catch anything. There was also a car of Michael's that he had towed to a salvage yard two weeks after Susan disappeared. And so the investigators found it and conducted forensic testing on it and had a cadaver dog look for any sort of human decomposition but everything came back inconclusive so police were pretty sure that michael was in on whatever had happened you know something that is nice about this terrible story is that at least police were very heavily involved it sounds like in really doing their part to bring closure to the situation I'm kind of glad you said that, Abby, because the reason that police started to get so involved in this is because they were under so much scrutiny for the way that they handled the situation with Brayden and Charlie. The fact that Josh, who they were 99% sure had murdered his wife, had any ability to see his children was something that a lot of people were outraged about. And so I think after that had happened, police really stepped in and they're like, we need to do a lot in this case because things have been kind of messed up. Yeah, kind of righting their wrongs. Yes. So as I've said, Michael has just committed suicide. Josh committed suicide as well. The boys are gone. Susan's gone. Well, in 2017, Stephen Powell was released from prison. But in July of the following year, he died in Washington of heart problems. So now at this point, most of the Powell family is gone. The parents of Susan, so Chuck and Judy, are actually suing the state for what they should have done to protect Charlie and Brayden more. And they're asking for $5 million in damages for every minute their grandchildren suffered on the day their father killed them, which was 10 minutes. So the damages would reach $87 million. And You know, money can't fix it, but I think that I definitely think that some different things should have been done. I don't know how much of it is necessarily about the money and how much of it is getting justice for them and making sure there's proper steps and training so that this doesn't happen to another family. I agree. And I think that bringing awareness to this case is to ensure that things are being followed in the future correctly. So the lawsuit that they filed was thrown out in 2015, but it was brought back to life last year in 2019. And so it was supposed to start the trial in February of 2020, 
which it did start this year earlier. But then, as we all know, COVID-19 is a thing and that delayed the trial. So the original plans were to start the trial back up on June 15th of this year. I couldn't find any information about whether or not it did officially start that day or if it's ended yet or what the results of that are. So I will try to keep an eye out for that and update you guys. But to this day, Susan's remains have not been found and her family is really just trying to find her remains so that she can be buried with her two boys. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.